In this episode of the Physician Grind podcast, Dr. Hannah Janeway shares how they incorporate their training as a physician into their role as an activist. Thank you to Dr. Hamong Acharya for conducting the interview. Hannah, so I wanted to start by asking you about your background with activism and specifically how you got involved with activist medicine and what your experiences have been recently. Yeah, so I was actually an activist well before I was ever a doctor. And in fact, I think that I've always seen medicine more as a tool for my activism than as something apart from it. I, since my early 20s or late teens, have been involved in various activist movements relating to different things, having to do with immigration, police brutality, like the war in Afghanistan and Iraq. Um, And then later, a lot of the topics that are related to social determinants of health. But I don't think that's the trajectory for everyone. I think some people become activists later in life or become activists around a particular topic. And there's certainly not one path to becoming an activist. Um, It's really just about your commitment to creating change on a personal, you know, community and local level and the actions that you decide to take in pursuit of that. So Los Angeles has definitely been one of the hotbeds of protest activity against the recent police brutality and also um, has been an advocate for Black Lives Matters. I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about your experiences at the protests so far and some of the things you've seen, both as an activist and also your experiences as a medical provider in those settings. Yeah, so, you know, Los Angeles has a long history of police brutality. Some of those events are very public, like Rodney King assault, and some of those, a lot of the most The vast majority of the events that occur in terms of police violence and brutality happen just on a daily basis to the citizens of Los Angeles themselves and are very infrequently reported. Actually, in fact, one of the ways that I got involved in speaking out more recently as a physician against police brutality occurred when there was a shooting of a patient in the emergency department where I was working. In that case, a young man named Ruben Herrera was in the emergency department in custody, and there was an event that ensued, and the police murdered him. And after that event, there was a lot of movement and action to kind of suppress what had happened, both by the police and by the hospital where I worked. And I had to work to actively speak out against what had happened. And while there was no charges ever filed against the officers, which is very typical for Los Angeles, at least Ruben's mother ended up winning a large settlement from the city. But that's just one, you know, more public example. Like I said, I think there's a lot of instances of police brutality in Los Angeles. So, you know, when this larger movement started to gain traction, and I say larger movement started to gain traction because in Los Angeles for a long time, there's been quite strong movement against police brutality and for both police and prison abolition. So when the larger national movement started to gain traction, I think Los Angeles was poised to take a lead um, in that movement. What we've tried to do, I think, as physicians is try to provide free health care and free support to protesters with the aim of allowing them to continue to protest and stay on the streets despite injuries and to provide an alternative to hospital-based care, which can sometimes be repressive to communities of color. 
We try to be as intentional as we can and work with, you know, local groups that are organizing these events, but sometimes we just go as private citizens. And there's a large group of doctors and there's also a large group of just medics, what are called street medics, something that I've been doing since I was about 20 years old, um, who are out on the streets providing that basic first aid and care to, to protesters themselves. I think it's an important part of protest because it does allow people to continue to protest and it makes people feel more comfortable in taking strategic risks when confronting the police about their brutality. Can you talk a little bit about what those strategic risks are and also a little bit about some of the things you've seen at the protests so far this year? Yeah, so I, I've always believed, and I think this is because I studied history in college, that in order to create change, you have to be willing to risk some of your privilege. And I think that's a lot easier for those of us who are physicians to do because we do have privilege in by just being physicians and occupying that space in society. Every physician has a different level of privilege. Some people have more privilege and some people have less privilege, but traditionally you see that individuals from higher socioeconomic groups and individuals who are Caucasian have a higher chance of getting in and going to medical school. And because we still have a racist classist system and uh, recruiting system in our medical schools. So I think that, you know, no matter who you are, though, you're allowed to take some sort of risk. And I think it's a moral imperative for physicians, if they really want to create change, to take some degree of risk. There's always risk when you go out in the streets and you provide free care because our system is not set up to support that sort of generosity in between individuals. And in fact, it penalizes people for being wanting to provide care to others in a non-hospital, non-corporate setting. So you have to risk your own personal liability. Sometimes you have to risk your own safety. But I think those are important risks to take in our contribution to the movement itself because they're far less than the risks that the average protester is taking out there. And a lot of those protesters don't have the same degree of privilege. A lot of them have jobs that they can't miss tomorrow, or they're losing a day's worth of income, or they don't have anyone to watch their children. Or if they get you know, arrested by the police, they're going to be subjected to much higher degrees of brutality because of the color of their skin. And so I think it's a pretty minimal risk that we're actually taking, because even if we lose a little bit of our privilege, um, many of us still have a lot of privilege left. Uh, that's really great. So Hannah, you mentioned that one of the barriers that a lot of physicians feel is the risk that they're taking in terms of medical legal liability repercussions if they were to get arrested and how that could affect their medical license. And this is obviously in the context of most physicians being in like hundreds of thousands of dollars of debt. Uh, how do you navigate that yourself and what advice do you have for physicians who do want to get involved but are frankly afraid of being arrested? and the negative legal complications that could come from that. Yeah, so, I mean, I think you make a great point that one of the reasons that physicians have told me that they don't want to get arrested are implications for paying off their debt or they're still in medical school, so, you know, they're medical students and they're worried that they're not going to get federal loans because of an arrest. And I think those, those concerns are real. Um, and, you know, that is a separate issue that needs to be addressed, which is like the great indebtedness you have to go into in this country um, to become a physician. And there should be alternative paths if really – you know, your desire as a physician is just to give back to the community. There should be ways um, to practice medicine and to not go into such great degrees of debt. 
And if you look at most of Europe and the rest of the world, you know, medical education in general is very cheap or free because the amount of training that you have to t- you have to take on in order to pay, you know, back in order to give to society is, is quite a bit. And I mean, in fact, I would be willing to make a lot less money if I didn't have, you know, debt hanging over me to kind of cage me into a particular, you know, job or a particular way of living um, that prohibits me from doing some of the things that I care about most. Um, but that said, I mean, I'm, I'm in, you know, $300,000 of debt or something like that. And it, it still doesn't stop me from, you know, taking those risks because the fact of the matter is, like I said before, in order to create change, if you're really committed to that, you do have to take some degree of risk. Prior to my most recent arrest, which was the first time I had been arrested since I've gotten my medical license, I did call my medical board and I asked them, you know, I'm planning on getting arrested and I want to know, am I going to lose my medical license for getting arrested? And I I encourage everyone to do that with their own medical boards because I think it's an important question, one that we should be completely fearless in asking. And I was told that, you know, as long as you don't do something, you don't do some action that would cast some sort of doubt on your ability to provide good care to patients that you will not lose your medical license. Yes, someone might report you. Yes, you might have to fill out some paperwork, but you will not lose your medical license for peacefully protesting and getting arrested for civil disobedience. Um, So that is reassuring to me. I'm not sure if that is the same in every state. And there are some individuals who will choose to do actions that uh, in civil disobedience that might be could possibly be construed as potentially casting some concern about their judgment um, to the medical board. And it's not that I'm saying that you shouldn't do those actions. Sometimes those actions are needed and strategic. But for the vast majority of cases where civil disobedience is used, the risk to your medical license, I think, is minimal, although it's not completely zero because you never really know what's going to happen. As I... I think, as I mentioned, but I think I think the risk is worth it. And part of that is being really intentional about what you do. You need to have an objective. You need to set up your action within with that objective in mind. And then you need to carry out your action. And you, you can't always do that. So recently we had an action where we protested in front of Customs and Border Patrol about their inhumane treatment of migrants and their inability and unwillingness to vaccinate both children and adults in their facilities. And we brought vaccines to their facilities and we demanded that we be let in and administer those vaccines because we had an entire protocol set up to do it safely. And they refused and we blocked the entrance to their headquarters and wouldn't let any traffic in or out. And because of that, we were arrested. That was a very planned, very strategic action that gained national media attention and brought light to our cause, which then allowed us to be able to have meetings in Washington, D.C., and accrue other sort of political capital that we could later use to advance the cause. Um, so that's one example of something you can do, but that is just one tiny form of protest. Sometimes it's not going to be planned. Sometimes you're going to be faced with a situation where the police are brutalizing someone and you feel that it is completely unjust and you're going to have to step in between the police and the individual and you might get arrested and you might be charged with a crime like resisting arrest, even though you didn't resist arrest. I was recently talking to a lawyer and he, he told me that truth was messy, but at least it's it's there. It's always there. And, you know, I think if you're doing something out of 
goodness and you're trying to do the right thing and there are always people video recording at the end of the day they might drag you through the sand but i think that we have an ethical and moral imperative to do it and i think we ha- we are on the right side of history and eventually that will exonerate us um and if it doesn't i mean we're all doctors we're highly educated there are a million other things that we can do with ourselves in this world um as activists or as healers and so i'm willing to take that risk because I think it's necessary to do it right now in this moment in history. So I wanted to talk a little bit about your experience at the recent protests in Los Angeles. Um, in your experience, what have they been like? Have there been any emergencies you've had to respond to, and how did that go? Well, first, I, I think you know it's been really incredible to see the amazing organizing that has been done by Black Lives Matter and other local groups to really bring forth a message to defund or abolish the police department here that has been so abusive for so long, um, and to really represent the communities um, that have been subjected to these crimes. So it's been very easy, actually, to incorporate um, myself into these protests because they have been so well organized. I've been out with various medic groups to which I'm a part and also have gone out with physicians who want to offer their services free of charge to protesters if they are to become injured. I've seen all sorts of things. Um, At the beginning, when the police were particularly vicious and violent, a lot of times it was rubber bullet injuries or other projectile injuries. There was a couple of rubber pellets that I had to pick out and also tear gas and pepper spray that were used against protesters. And I want to remind you that actually tear gas is a chemical weapon and has been condemned um, to be used against civilians. So, I mean, there are a lot of, you know, international laws and standpoints that come out against the use of chemical weapons on civilians. And this sort of state media violence is absolutely unacceptable. So I've been out treating a lot of those things. Those are usually pretty minor injuries, um, although any sort of projectile, if it hits the wrong area, the eye, the mouth, the cheek, the head, including tear gas canisters, can actually create a lot of damage. And those injuries like, have been noted at a bunch of different protests around the country and in Los Angeles themselves. I was also witness and helped treat a young activist who was very outspoken in one of the protests who was likely attacked by a white supremacist with some sort of chemical reagent that was sprayed onto that individual and who sustained a pretty significant burn. And I think, you know, one of the lessons that I learned, which I'm constantly learning as a street medic during that event was just that my presence itself and my ability to, you know, kind of reassure her that there was a professional there who was willing to provide that attention and get her to the right place was probably the most important thing that I I could do. Part of the movement has really been taking back things that have traditionally been taken out of the hands of the people or placed into the hands of like a group that's seen as higher, like doctors in this kind of hierarchy and putting it back in the hands of, you know, individuals um, from the community on the streets. And there's been a long history around the world of the use of community health workers and other individuals who really are perfectly qualified with some very minimal training to provide basic first aid. And so some of what we've been doing has also been giving out like packets that have band-aids and cold packs and baby soap so that people can treat each other um, and provide community basic first aid and support to one another during protests, which I think is really, really important. Yeah, that sounds really intense. Uh, I didn't see anything in the news about white supremacists doing chemical attacks on protesters. Could you tell us a little bit about what you saw exactly? 
Yeah, I'll try to do my best without, you know, publicly identifying the individual because I'm not sure what they want to be projected out into the world um, about what happened. But essentially, you know, we were at a protest. Um, It was a very large protest uh, recently. The individual was like a very powerful, outspoken activist who was at that protest, you know, walking up and down through the crowd, leading chants, and then was later on a platform and speaking. She noted that an older gentleman kind of walked by and sprayed something. And at first, she really didn't think anything of it. She thought it was just sunscreen or something else. There's tons of people at protests doing a lot of different things. So she didn't think much of it until her legs started burning, um, first itching and then burning. And by the time I saw her, she was in a significant amount of pain and on the ground basically crying. We decontaminated her by removing her pants and irrigating what looked to be a burn over her leg as as much as we could and then dressing it and getting her the medical getting her to a hospital where she could get the medical attention that she needed like i said i think you know my, the most important thing that i did was probably not any of the medical care i provided but just more the reassurance that she was going to be okay and that i was a doctor and that it was probably a burn but you know she was going to get through this Per what she's reported to me since, I mean, it seems like it was actually a pretty severe burn is going to require some sort of extensive management to get her back to a place where she's healthy again. It, I think that it, it kind of created a turning point in my, my mentality about the protests that are going on right now. I've certainly been in scenarios where there's both state-mediated violence and there's also paramilitary groups. Um, some of the work that I did in the Middle East involved both of those. But I think in the United States, it's usually been one or the other. And it's never, it's probably always been both. But this was just such a stark example of the fact that it was both. It's really easy to identify the police and to kind of identify the threats that they might pose to us and what sort of equipment they might have and how they might go about that. um, Because they're usually in uniform. And you know, there's also a lot of undercover cops who usually come in and out of the crowd and can perform various provocateur acts and other things. But I haven't seen as much, at least in my personal experience, individuals in the crowd attacking other individuals in a crowd, at least not quite so viciously as what had happened. And it just made me really realize, you know, the political climate we're in 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 this country right now and the vast amount of hate and racism that there is, which obviously is obvious and I should have known, but it was like a very like poignant example of such. And it really made me have to rethink like our entire strategy of like providing care and how to look out for people. And I know also that there was messages that I got about water being contaminated and other things in protests and there are a ton of people who are out there providing community services and contributing to the protests on their own and really thinking about you know now you have to actually actively question the motivations of all these people and who's really on our side and who's out there to do harm um, which is a scary thought and unfortunate so even as i think this about this more i think one of the other things that really struck me was the fact that there was an ambulance maybe 20 feet from where we were and at one point some of the paramedics came over to see what was going on and they evaluated her and wanted to bring her to a hospital 
And she actually declined because she doesn't have insurance and doesn't have a lot of money right now. And I think this really just like highlights the vast income and health disparities that we have in our country. And it's sad to me that someone can be a victim, like just be out at a peaceful protest trying to create change and be a victim of probably a hate crime. I mean, I don't have all the details, but what I'm assuming was a hate crime and then not even be able to go via ambulance to get the attention that she so deserved. And we had to send her via private car to reduce the overall cost to her. And in, now she's going to face all these hospital bills. And it's just, it's just really sad and unfortunate that our healthcare system does not provide a safety net to individuals like that or any sort of assistance. The good thing is, is that while our you know, organized government and our board of supervisors doesn't provide that sort of safety net always to our patients, the community organizers have, and there's Black Lives Matter and some other of the local community groups like um, Ground Game do have funds for people who are injured in the protests. And so hopefully she'll be able to utilize some of those funds to pay for her medical bills. But it's just, it's both empowering and sad that it has to be that way. Uh, Hannah, thank you for sharing that story. That's really powerful to hear. To conclude, I was just wanted to ask you any general advice that you have for physicians or anyone who wants to get involved with these protests as an activist or as a medical provider or both. Um, any like resources that you recommend or approaches that you have? Yeah, so I think, you know, one of the main things that I have learned and I like to reiterate is that not everyone has to approach activism in medicine the way I do. I'm obviously very involved and it's a huge part of who I am and how I find meaning in life. It's not all selfless, like we all have, you know, motives for what we do. But just even really small things, getting involved in small ways, doing some organizing in your medical school or in your residency trying to incorporate more implicit bias training or recruit underrepresented minorities in medicine, to going out there to protest, um, finding an issue that you really care about and staging a protest or a direct action, or creating change on any level from the very most basic individual level to your hospital, to your residency, to your community, to the national level, however you feel fit. I think the most important thing, like I said, is that I really don't believe that you can create change without taking some sort of risk. And to remember, which I think is hard for a lot of physicians, that this is not about you and this is not about me. This is about really contributing to the movement in a meaningful way. And it's not always going to be in your best interest. And sometimes you're going to have to sacrifice your time or your privilege or your money or any a million other things that you hold dear to you in order to really make that contribution and to really always be self-reflective about that and your role and your own ego in all of this. Um, There's a lot of different ways to get involved. There's obviously different organizations at different institutions. There's some larger national organizations that do activism and organizing for doctors, such as the Do No Harm Coalition. We're about to launch a website to just help people connect around different issues and have information, educational information about how to plan a protest or direct action, that's going to be at um, activistmedicine.org. We also have, you know, many different groups that are working on like migrant issues at the border, like Docs for Camp Closure, there's Docs for People of Color. So there's, there's a ton of organizations that exist for physicians. And then there's also a lot of organizations that just exist in the community, just like Black Lives Matter or other local community organizations. And I think whatever you do, don't just be involved in physician-led organizations. I think that really leads us astray. Most of the important work that's being done 
are in these community organizations and being able to go in and humble yourself to just being a a foot soldier in that community involvement and offering whatever services they feel like would be beneficial. And that might not be your physician services. That might just be your white face as a privilege standing in front of the police and protecting the protesters at a protest. So I think all of those things are, are ways to get involved. And if you're not involved at all, you can just start out really slowly and then figure out ways to get more and more involved if you really believe in what you're doing. So one of the other things that I really wanted to say, which I think is important to note in the progression of our specialty and our profession, which has generally been pretty conservative and backwards and failed to evolve appropriately, um, like some of the other professions or community organizations, which is that doctors really do have a history of activism. And I think for a long time, especially in recent history, we've kind of ignored that. And we focused much more on the history of medicine itself, like some old white guy who discovered some sort of, you know, important innovation. But actually, there have been many physicians who have been activists over the years. And it's just not something that's talked about in medicine. I mean, you can look even about 200 years back and you'll find the name of a woman named Maria Qui, who was a queer, radical anarchist physician who provides services to the poor. I mean, we're never taught about her. And if you look back to like the 1960s, you can see that there was a very strong collaboration between the Young Lords and resident physicians in New York City that the building of which um, that they initially organized in was later became the headquarters for the Young Lords. So there is a very strong history of activism in medicine that is ignored. And I don't think we should think, wow, this is like a new thing that we're doing or inventing that all of a sudden activism and medicine can be said in the same sentence and that's somehow revolutionary. Like it's been that way for a while and we've just kind of forgotten that or not invested enough energy into growing that throughout the years. Thanks. That's really inspiring to hear. Uh, thanks again for your time, Hannah, and I'll give the mic back over to Zahir. Thank you, Hannah and Haymong. This episode explores the importance of getting involved with activism and advocating for change. We agree with Dr. Janeway. In order to create change, you have to be willing to risk some of your privilege. And we thank them for taking the time to share how to get started. Visit activistmedicine.org and donoharmcoalition.org to learn more. Physicians have a long history of activism. Now is the time to continue that tradition and take a stand. This episode was edited and produced by Anna Basrai. Thanks for listening.